I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Hey, John. It's good to be with you again for another episode of our Flight Safety Detectives there's been a lot going on. We definitely had a lot to talk about over the holiday, of course, with the the 737 MAX stuff. But now we have another high visibility event involving a, a famous basketball player. And when you look at all of the things that are taking place with uh, the Kobe Bryant investigation, because that's the way it's referred, which I really have a problem with. Only because, yes, he was the famous guy. He was the, the name and the face of not only basketball, but of course now this accident. But there were other people on this aircraft, including his daughter, whose name has been used. But the folks that were also on that aircraft are nameless most of the time in the media. They don't do a very good job of identifying these other folks. They, they do it in passing. But I think it's really a disservice to their family that they are <laughs> they are classified in a lot of these news articles and stories on TV as and others. I just think that that's sad for those families. I think that's why the NTSB always just refers to the accident by either the airline flight number or the type of airplane because it is a disservice to the other people on there. Yeah, and, and the safety board, one of the questions that you and I get asked all the time is why does it take so long to do an accident investigation, especially something like this, where it seems quite obvious that, you know, hey, weather played a major factor. You got a, you got a helicopter that was being operated by a pilot who, even though he may have been capable with the qualifications to fly in instrument meteorological conditions, the company was limited in the type of operation that they were required by the FAA to maintain, and that was only flights under visual flight rules. And so, of course, when people are asking, well, it's an obvious accident. The guy flew into the side of a hill, couldn't see it because of the fog and the clouds, you know, case closed. How many times have we heard about obvious accidents and they weren't obvious? Ultimately, the outcome wasn't obvious. And there's a process. The safety board sends a team out. And in this particular instance, I was reading somewhere where somebody was asking, well, why did the NTSB send so many people to this accident? Was it because it was Kobe Bryant? And was this something special versus all the other accidents? And the, que and the answer is no. The board has selective criteria. Normally, they launch the team when there is a major event, which a lot of times it is an airline or a large aircraft. 
But part of that determination is also about a high visibility accident. And in this case, it was a high visibility accident because of the people that were on board. And there's actually two parts to it. Because the other piece is you have investigators sitting in Washington or wherever their office may be, and there is not a lot of activity. And the skills that you gain as an investigator are perishable. Use them or lose them. So if you're out there and and look at, we've had 10 years with very little accidents. 10 years, you can, if you haven't used your skills, you don't have any skills. Exactly. And and that's a very good point. I mean, the field investigators, the board is made up of a number of field investigators. Then they have subject matter expert investigators out of Washington, D.C., led by a GO team captain or a senior investigator. Those folks, because we don't have a lot of majors and because, like you said, those skills are perishable, they want to send them out. They want to get them engaged, get them involved and and keep those skills up versus a field investigator where you're doing, you know, 800, 900 accidents a year all over the country with small general aviation airplanes where these investigators are continually going out and looking at not only fixed wing, but helicopter, LSAs, anything that flies. And so their skills are at least maintained to a higher level of proficiency. So, yeah, the board sends a a big team out there just to keep people fresh. Plus, the board has turnover. So you may have investigators that are there now that weren't there a year ago or two years ago because there is turnover at the safety board. So... And that they send two board members for that purpose as well. Yes, because we got a brand new board member. So it's an opportunity to, to watch and see the process in motion, if you will, because you can't just learn this stuff on the fly. It does take a, a level of decorum. There is a point where you as the board member, when you went out on accidents as a board member, you are the face of the investigation. Now, a lot of people get confused because they the news media always refers to the board member doing the press conferences as leading the investigation. And while that is a does have some truth to it, you're not actually physically conducting the accident investigation. You're the face of the investigative team providing the facts, conditions, and circumstances to the press, to the public. You're dealing with the political aspects because you're going to have local politicians and and high-ranking officials, uh, especially like in this case because of the visibility and the people on board. You are the one that deals with all of that while the investigative team is actually out doing what we lovingly refer to as kicking tin. I always viewed it as I was the guy that ran interference for all the politicians and, and sometimes the press and sometimes others that may have a, a better idea on what the investigation should be and feel that their power, because they're state officials usually, is such that they can interfere. And as a, as a board member, you do. In fact, it's sometimes it's between federal agencies. I mean, we've had tay to tays with the FBI and sometimes big tay to tays with the FBI. And we've had a few with TSA in the beginning, but those are gone now that there's memorandums of understanding that clearly identify that the NTSB takes the lead and how it changes that that lead to other people when the time comes up. And I think that one of the other things that always comes up besides how long it takes and, and the fact that they send so many people is, what is the process? We both go out and we do safety presentations. We educate airlines, insurance companies, and others as to participating 
in an accident investigation that's conducted by the National Transportation Safety Board. And you and I had talked about doing a show where we at least explain to the listeners what it is that the board is doing. They see, in this case, Jennifer Hamady giving the the information to the press, giving the facts as they develop them. But what's going on behind the scenes? And you and I have worked on both sides of that. You worked with me when we did a U.S. Air Flight 1016 down in Charlotte, where you were actually representing the mechanics union for U.S. Airways, or at that time it was just U.S. Air. And then all of a sudden, you switched stripes, you became a politically appointed board member. So your entire role changed, but you've been on basically both sides of the fence. And I think from my standpoint, working with you, that has been a big benefit because one, you're aviation knowledgeable, you've been on both sides, so you can explain the process as an accident investigator, and then of course, as a political figure in front of the camera, providing information to the public. Rudder travel pitch field. Nav exterior light. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Rank it aboard. Fire handle. So over the last uh, few days, we've heard a lot of inaccurate information from the press about what happens. So why don't we take one from the top? Why don't we take this one right from the GO team? All right, so the accident just happened. I'll lead it off. So the accident just happened. We're both here in D.C., so now the phone rings. And typically when the board, normally it's a a week or a two-week on, two-week off type rotation where an IIC is selected to be on duty as well as uh, the subject matter experts for power plant structures, systems, operations, all of the various disciplines that the board would have subject matter experts for. Everybody is on on alert or on duty as we called it so that if the bell does go off, then everybody is plugged in and a determination is made as to who's going to launch because of what we know. And so as the IIC on this particular accident, that IIC will get in a notification. Typically it comes in from the FAA through the NTSB comm center. The comm center puts everybody up on a common bridge and they start developing information. That is, what are the facts as they know them? What's going to be exchanged with the NTSB and the FAA? And we're trying to get as much information as possible during those initial hours of gathering information to determine who in fact is going to launch immediately with the team versus can show up a day or two later. You know, I'd like to add a piece right here is that there's some unsung heroes in the middle of all this and that the communication center that we have, they're the folks that arrange for all the hotel rooms, all the rental cars, all the support that the team needs, as well as gathering all the information from all the news channels. Yes. If you visit that communications room, you're going to see a wall of TV cameras. And they're all set on a specific channel. And they're all monitoring what's coming into those stations. Because in certain areas of the country, certain stations have more resources available to them so they can get more information. And in the old days, <laughs> we uh, it used to be the IIC that... Uh, did a lot of that coordination and information gathering, utilizing the resources of the administrative assistants in the office and things like that. So the comm center has become really the heartbeat of the board when it comes to getting the initial team or the initial launch sequence going with the team so that 
they can coordinate all the behind scenes so that the investigators can concentrate on getting relevant information that they're going to need to be prepped with and, and prepared for soon as they hit the ground, wherever they're going to go. And in this case, it was California. So the, the team, the investigator in charge basically is rounding up the team. We have the ability as the NTSB to utilize the FAA resources and assets, which in this case would be one of their airplanes flown by an FAA crew. So once the team has uh, assembled at Hangar 6 in Washington National or Ronald Reagan National Airport, the team will launch on one of the airplanes and head to the accident site. In this case, the accident happened in the morning. The team actually launched late in the afternoon out of D.C. Of course, it's five, six-hour flight, so they got there late. And again, once you touch down and that door opens, it's showtime. And, and I think that Bob Francis, when he was the vice chairman of the NTSB, he went out on an accident with me. It was actually ValueJet. I was keeping him apprised because I was gathering information in flight. And at the very end, right before uh, we opened up that door, I told him, I said, it's showtime. And you put on a whole different face as the investigator in charge, as the board member. You have to be prepared for a bombardment of what do we do? What's going on? What's the cause? Who's here? Who's not here? Why aren't you here? What are you doing? And things like that. And as the board member, you're going to be dealing with a lot of it while I'm walking in the shadow trying to get the guys ready to, to do their respective job. Again, that's what a board member does. He's got to be out there in front satisfying the press and all the, all the politicians and all the other people that show up at one of these scenes and try to so to keep it control and keep it in focus and keep it away from interfering with the investigation. And the biggest thing is that you're bringing a group of people together under really the most adverse circumstances. A lot of times, nobody knows anybody else except for the NTSB knowing their team and possibly the FAA and some of the manufacturing reps who have worked with the board over the years. But now you're showing up in L.A., you're going to be meeting the sheriff and, and the local gendarmes and, and a variety of uh, first responders for the first time trying to gather as much information. But you're all working under a high-stress level in a high-stress environment because people want answers. You got the media there. It turns into a media circus. So there are a lot of eyes on you. And then, of course, the team itself is expecting the investigator in charge to choreograph the events. Okay, boss, what do you want us to do now? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? We're going to go to the hotel since it's nighttime. We can't go out to the accident site, can't really see anything. So let's go to the hotel. Let's get the organizational meeting started so we can pick who is going to participate in the investigation process and provide us, the board, with the highest levels of expertise from Sikorsky, from the operator, from the engine manufacturer, from the FAA. And so the whole purpose of that organizational meeting is to determine who, in fact, is going to be on the team because not everybody's allowed to participate in an accident investigation conducted by the NTSB. And that always leads to some conflicts. The general counsel shows up. What, what do you do, Greg? Well, I've had the general counsel show up for an airline and manufacturer, and I politely excuse him because the board's rules say we need people that will provide technical expertise 
And so a board member or a um, politician or some sort of executive management or the general counsel from a corporation or an organization, the operator, whatever, they can't provide that level of technical expertise. The board also has certain qualifications for those folks that are going to participate on some of the groups, such as ops or maintenance. They typically want a line pilot. They don't want to have a management pilot unless it's absolutely necessary because the, the company may be small, and I've had that. They normally want a line pilot who's current and qualified on the equipment because they want to get the line pilot perspective because one of the aspects that the board will look at is the operator's management. They will look at the hierarchy. They will look at the decision-making. They will look at the policies and procedures in place, and they don't want to get an interpretation by the management. They want to see what a line pilot would fly under as far as their interpretation of the policies, procedures, and the way flights are executed. All right. So now take that one step further. The vice president of maintenance shows up. I'm going to ask the vice president of maintenance who he is going to anoint to be on the maintenance records group or system structures, power plants group, but he's not going to participate. Now, I have been lobbied as an IIC where the director of maintenance has said, look, we're a real small organization. I only got two mechanics. You know, I want to put guys on three groups. That then director of maintenance or vice president of maintenance becomes a participant. Again, the board doesn't like to have management because they're trying to get a line perspective and not necessarily a management perspective because management is going to be one area that the board will look at as part of the investigative process. Right. And the last one that I can think of is public affairs. Public affairs is huge because you have a number of things going on. If it's a corporate aircraft, you have brand imaging to worry about. So if you have a Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 company that has one of their executive jets go down and the president or the CEO of the company is on board, yes, they have to deal with the aspect of, yes, there's been a crash, it's involved the CEO, but they also have to protect their brand because it's going to have an adverse effect on their stock and, and shareholders and a variety of other things. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of misinformation that comes out because they don't understand that they are limited by the board's rules as to the type of information that can be presented. It happens with the airlines. We've seen it when I, when I launched on American 1420 down in Little Rock, their <laughs> vice president of flight operations at the time, who was a great guy, talked about the fact that American Airlines would be participating with the NTSB in its investigation and in assisting the board. But then someone asked a question about the weather at Little Rock the night the airplane crashed. And of course, it was just an off-the-cuff remark, but this <laughs> this uh, management person said, I wouldn't have been within 50 miles of the place. Well, that became a headline because all of a sudden now they've put the focus on the fact that the crew was flying themselves into a into an environmental situation that even the <laughs> the vice president of flight operations wouldn't have been within 50 miles so that became a real issue so picking and choosing words carefully from a media perspective it has to be coordinated with the NTSB because any investigation where the board is involved they become the spokespersons for the process 
the, uh, the parties are limited by what they can say. And if there are questions, direct questions that could compromise at least some objectivity or get really into the process of acts investigation, the best thing they can do is just divert that to the, hey, the NTSB will answer that question because they're running the investigation, period. That's the easiest answer. But it is the board who who is the face of an investigation. They are the ones that are going to release the information throughout the course of that investigation. Okay, so now we're starting to move forward. We've picked the teams, and we're going to be bailing out of the hotel and, and go to the site. There's one piece that's always overlooked when the press talks about it and everybody talks about it, but it is an important piece. Up till this point in time, the local police or state police, or whatever it happens to be, is in control of the site. If there's fatalities, we now have the state coroner involved. And we also always, whenever there's a fire, even when there's not a fire, we have the, uh, the local fire department and then ultimately the uh, state fire marshal shows up. So we've got these multiple entities of local folks that we now have to disengage or change their engagement. So normally the board member will interface with the IIC to try to get this done because the IIC at this point in time is buried with things to do. Correct. So getting the board member involved takes away some of those problems that the IIC would have to deal with. And the IIC is the choreographer. I was intimately involved in a lot of the investigative process when I was running majors just because of my background as a field investigator. But there are other administrative duties that I always had to deal with. We have the subject matter experts that would go to the accident site, the the systems, power plants, structures guys, human factors, and the ops guys to gather information and things like that. So the accident site was... uh, was well taken care of without me having to be out there and oversee it. There were a lot of times when I would go out there so I could get the information firsthand from whoever we anointed, and usually it was a structures guy or systems guy, who took the lead and took control of the accident scene itself to get their respective work done. But I always wanted to get updates because I was always getting questioned, whether it was by Washington, my bosses and and other board members, or the media. And so I always wanted to have up-to-date information rather than wait the whole day for the progress meeting to occur to find out what had taken place during the day. So it all depends on how much interaction, how much administrative work needs to be done. But The site is probably one of the most critical, if not the most critical elements, because the evidence out there at the accident site is perishable. From the time that aircraft goes down and the first responder shows up, now all of a sudden the accident site is contaminated because now you're going to have multiples of people. And especially if there's a fire, you got the fire department trying to put the fire out. A lot of ground impact marks and data and evidence that is perishable, we lose that during the course of the first responders doing their respective job. We don't hold it against them. We just know that it's going to make our job as investigators a little more difficult if there were, in this case, rotor slash marks in the dirt, in the side of the hill that could be used to determine rotor RPM and things like that. You start spraying foam and water on it, it disappears. So the accident site information and evidence is quite perishable. And so the priority is put 
on collecting all the facts, conditions, and circumstances at the accident site. But there is always a backstory and there's always work going on behind the scenes by other groups. Yeah, and people don't realize just how important that gathering of the physical evidence and the location of the evidence is. Now, I noticed in this helicopter accident, at least part of the road ahead, and it looked like the shaft going to the transmission was located some distance away from the helicopter. And that could be a very, very telling clue as to what has transpired. Absolutely. Especially since, and my way of thinking, I'm not jumping on board with everybody that's saying that this pilot screwed up because I think he had a little bit too much time and he's flown in that hazy condition out in California, but he was climbing up out of this terrain problem that he had and visibility problem that he had, and he was climbing up at a rapid rate. And then if you believe the data that's coming in, and it has to be refined, but to believe the initial data read, he came down like a rock. Yeah. Well, that tells me that he might not have lost situational awareness. It tells me that maybe some mechanical failure occurred sure. on that helicopter and it came straight back down. So that needs to be looked at closely. And I was happy to see that the NTSB gathered up all the, the debris and took it with them because yeah. I think there's a clue in there. And and you bring up a good point. Yes. I mean, you know, you got all the talking heads out there who have already come up with the conclusion that, yes, this pilot was a CFIT or a loss of control because they got into high terrain. It was obscured. Pilot either got disoriented, lost situational awareness, combination of both, lost the aircraft. The board's methodology is they're going to go out looking for mechanical malfunctions and failures that may have caused or contributed to the accident. And it's a system of elimination, if you will. It's a process of elimination because you're going out looking at the physical evidence, trying to determine, as you said, John, whether or not there was a mechanical malfunction that played into this sequence. And it was either coincidental or it was the actual cause. And it just so happened that it was in IMC conditions in high terrain. So there's there's a lot of work yet to be done, which, of course, extends the timeline. What you see on site and the fact that the board was out there for several days, yes, they, they were mapping the, the wreckage. They were looking initially at some of the debris, looking for things that may have been curious that they're going to do further examination with, things like that. You can only do so much on the side of a hill. It's not a sterile environment. You don't want to start taking very detailed component parts apart (laughs) up on the hill because, again, there's a chance of contamination. You could induce damage that wouldn't normally be there or was accident related. And now you've made it very difficult to determine whether or not you did it or it happened during the accident sequence. So the board will do what they can. Now, the one criticism that the board has suffered because of this is they are starting to use drones to map the accident site. So they flew a drone over the accident site, and it helps the investigators get the big picture, if you will, especially as with this aircraft having struck the ground in a particular attitude and then spread wreckage over a large debris field. They posted that video up on their website. The media used it as well. Unfortunately, it upset the families. And I don't know, because you and I weren't there, we don't know what kind of coordination they may have had with the families before they did it. I know they were trying to do it in the interest of providing additional factual information, but in this case, it may have really created more 
human element issues because it was very disturbing for the family to see it in that perspective because nobody had been that close to the accident site. A lot of the media was using zoom lenses, but it was still a distance away versus being right on top of that wreckage. Yes. And that that's a balance that's very difficult to maintain. And as a board member dealing with the families in some big accidents, such as the value jet one, yeah. and they were they were really upset. And trying to strike that balance between satisfying the, the press or the public's need to know what's going on and also drive some change and some awareness in the rest of the industry. Yeah. You know, one of the things that separates aviation from many other modes of transportation is that if we find a flaw in our system, we will fix it or we will mitigate it yes. down to the point to lower it. So getting that information out is critical. Let, letting other pilots know, letting the uh, engineering departments, management of the airlines, whatever, let people know what basically is going on. Not drawing any conclusions, but letting them know some of the flaws can get them addressed immediately. You know, I used to call it a communications moment. After an accident, we have a period of time where everybody's listening and you can drive change in that window of time. But the NTSB reports take a, a year or more sometimes to come out. You've lost that communications moment. Now it's just another event. Yes. Right. So it's important to drive some of that factual information out to drive immediate change. And if you listen to the press conferences, as the information came out in bits and pieces, you and I have been there, so we understood what was being done. There was question about the fact that the aircraft didn't have a cockpit voice recorder on it. Well, that aircraft came from the manufacturer with a cockpit voice recorder on it. It was being used by the state of Illinois, who was the original purchaser of that aircraft with a cockpit voice recorder on it. But when it got delivered to the new owner, and of course this operator, the aircraft didn't have a cockpit voice recorder on it. The question is, well, if you've already got it on there, why didn't you just leave it on there? It's a, it's a device that can be used to enhance safety. So the board's going to have to determine what was going on. Why'd you take it off? I, I got my own suspicions about, you know, the fact that it takes a, a lot of maintenance to make sure that that, that box is maintained and the aircraft um, remains airworthy and things like that. But that's a big question. Why? Because that could have been a very valuable tool for board investigators, because if you have the pilot who is communicating with air traffic control, that's over the air, and we've heard it on the internet. But there's a lot of speculation that, you know, Kobe Bryant may have pressured the pilot to conduct the flight, even in bad weather conditions. It was, you know, point A to point B, accomplished the mission. Well, we don't have any of that discussion that was taking place in that cockpit. We don't know if Kobe Bryant told the pilot, hey, we're going anyway. Do whatever you can to get us there versus, you know, some other conversation. So that would have been a valuable tool for the board to really understand what was transpiring in the aircraft. The other part of this was TAWS or the Train Awareness Warning System. Why didn't this aircraft have it? Again, it's an expensive install. It was a commercial operation, but there are limitations. The FARs, the uh, Federal Aviation Regulations, don't necessarily require it. And so that is going to be a, a huge subject that the board's going to be talking about because the board has made recommendations in the past about equipping 
commercial helicopters or those helicopters that are being used for commercial purposes to be equipped with a TAWS system or EGPWS, Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System. EMS helicopters have them. A lot of the police and sheriff's departments who operate helicopters have that. So now you have, you know, nine people on a helicopter, eight of which are, are paying. It's a commercial operation. Why wouldn't you give this pilot all of the safety devices to accomplish the mission safely? Yeah, it defies description sometimes, but we're going to have to, we as a nation are going to have to address that. What level of safety enhancements do we want on our transportation systems? Good morning, John on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. In looking at the process, you were asking me, so once all of the on-scene stuff is done, typically every night that the team is out doing their respective work, at night there's a progress meeting. So all of the NTSB folks and all of the group members on those respective groups come together at night, do a a briefing, we call it cross-pollinization, where operations will tell the group, okay, this is what we did today. This is the information we were able to get from witnesses, from the cockpit, from instruments, things like that. And then the maintenance guys will get up and say, yeah, we reviewed the maintenance records. We found this. We saw this. It's curious because they just replaced this part. That cross-pollinization of information helps the investigators determine what they're going to do the next day. Because if something was found in a maintenance record that a part had just been fixed or, or changed out, The day before, now all of a sudden, that brings focus for the uh, structures or power plants or or systems group to be able to go out and find that component part and see if, in fact, that could have been a cause or contributing factor to some event. So this cross-pollinization takes place. And so this transference of information is very beneficial for each of the groups. Plus, it gives the opportunity for both the investigator in charge and the board member to get caught up on what activities took place that day and then what's intended for tomorrow because the board member is going to provide that information in a limited manner to the public through the media. And so that demonstrates what the board's doing, how the process is working, and what future activities are going to take place. Yeah, and that, that uh, information sharing at that point is very, very critical. And keeping the families up to date. I mean, while I was there, we actually changed the process there at the NTSB. We actually changed the process where the board member would go and brief the families before the TV appearance, before the stand-up is what. And that came out because, uh, you know, TWA 800 and, and a bit of value jet, families were finding out from TV what was going on rather than having a face-to-face or an intimate interaction with the investigative staff. So you are right, it changed. So now before the board member goes before the TV cameras, either public affairs and or the board member will brief the families, hey, this is what transpired. This is what we're going to talk about on TV. We wanted to give you this information first because it's only right so that they don't have to watch TV. Again, there was another criticism of the news media in the Kobe accident because Kobe's wife found out about the accident and who was on it or potentially who was on this this aircraft through the news media. And that was unfair because none of the alphabet groups that were responsible for providing notification even knew 
and had not provided any kind of official notification. So it is, it's, I mean, we are in a 24-hour news media cycle. People are going to start digging and find out and who's this and who's that. And all of a sudden they start getting this information because they want to be number one. And sometimes yeah. that's very, very unfair, not only to the families, but it can have some compromise to the investigative process, depending on the information. Yeah, and the age of all the talking heads and the so-called experts, many of the experts are fine, but far too many of them are really out well, to, to uh, lunch. I mean, they made stuff up about why this, why this airplane was turning in circles for 15 minutes. Some said, well, it was because of a mechanical malfunction or failure, and the pilot was trying to figure out where he was going to put the helicopter down. That wasn't true at all. It was because he was restricted from going into a piece of airspace by an air traffic controller. So you can't go into the airspace without permission. So you stay outside the airspace. And the best way to do that was to turn circles until he was cleared in. That kind of misinformation misleads the public. It's really atrocious because there are a lot of talking head and uh, folks out there that aren't investigators. They're wannabes. They're junior investigators. They take factoids and build stories, but they've never actually been an investigator. And that, too, is unfair because they start injecting personal opinions into some of their comments that have no basis in fact. And again, the process, especially in the first 24, 48, even 72 hours, you're still in the fact-finding process. And so as every day went on, if you watched these press conferences, new pieces of factual information came out about the operator, about the pilot, about the helicopter, things like that. You know, the big question I have is from all the information that's out there, there were nine people on this helicopter. I saw a news report where the state of Illinois said, well, I don't know how they put nine people on that helicopter because it wasn't configured to handle nine people. That's going to be a question for the NTSB because we've seen accidents where we've had 12 people on a 10-person right. aircraft. We didn't have enough seats. So where'd those other people sit? How were they secured? Things like that. So there is so much backstory and, and information and investigation that's taking place behind the veil of what's in front of the TV camera. And that's why the process takes as long as it takes. You know, about a year from now, we'll, we'll have all the facts out, but we'll probably have something before then. Let's talk about the public hearing. You know, the NTSB will determine at some point in time, usually within a couple of months of the accident, whether or not there's a need for public hearing. And a public hearing is when we have a formal get-together and we bring witnesses up and we ask them questions. Uh, sometimes we already know the answers to the questions. But we want them on the record from somebody like the president of the yeah. company or, or at some level, the FAA. Yeah, and it, and it serves other purposes as well. It gives the public an opportunity to see the process up close and real. While the public can't be involved in the process, they can view it from the gallery, if you will, to see how the board operates, to see the interaction between witnesses that can provide additional information and things like that. So that's a valuable process. Once the uh, public hearing is done, the investigators will take that information. They will look at it. They will see where they need to gap fill. Maybe they had some questions that they didn't get complete answers to or very good answers or even answers at all. So it helps fill the gaps for each of the subject matter experts to be able to put together a good factual report 
that will then turn into the final report. Once that information is collated, put all together, goes around the horn and is approved by at least the staff level of the investigators and management, a draft then is provided to the board members for their review. Yes, and at that point, we will go over all the submissions. Now, a submission, any party to the investigation, as well as anyone else, can send in thoughts to the board members. And I can tell you firsthand, we looked at those all the time. I read every single one of them. I've had family members call me or come in to visit and talk about the investigation and some of the feelings that they had and some of their concerns. I've raised questions over and over. I can think of TWA. I really put some of the staff on on the spot because in front of a room full of people, I asked questions from the families mm-hmm. that needed to be answered. But it's an open process. Unlike much of government, we call it a sunshine meeting too at the end. I mean, it's done out in the open. Most people don't realize that at the very end, when we, the five of us sit up there and pontificate, we're not allowed to talk any more than one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So I can go talk to one of my other board members. If there's three of us, that constitutes a meeting, and that's a big problem. Yeah. So it's only a one-on-one. So and there is no collusion around. Sure. And, to- and I've had you come down to my office and say, hey, I read the report. What is this about? Or what does this mean? Or who should I talk to about this? Because it's... I don't really understand it, or it doesn't really make sense, or it needs clarification. That's where the board tries to iron out these issues. Yes, the Sunshine Meeting is going to be full of questions, and as the investigator in charge, I typically, or the investigator in charge, will typically run the Sunshine Meeting from the technical standpoint. After all the bosses are introduced and things like that, the board members are asking the IIC or each of the respective subject matter experts very specific questions. But I know you and some of the other board members used the submissions from the airline, from the manufacturer, from the FAA. Well, the FAA doesn't really put in submissions, but they do make some comments every once in a while. But I remember that those submissions were always used as the basis of questions that were posed to me or or my team to try and answer. Mr. Fyth, the aircraft manufacturer says this in their submission. I don't see it in our report. Why not? Well, I had to be able to justify why it didn't go into the report. We looked at it. We examined it. We saw the point, but it didn't have relevance in the facts, conditions, and circumstances and the cause or contributing cause sequence of events. So we dismissed it. But those comments still reside in the public docket so people can read what those comments may have been. It's just that the board didn't consider that relevant for the purposes of determining probable cause. Right. And that's the piece that a lot of people miss too, including the press. All right. The purpose of the NTSB is to get to the probable cause, the most probable cause of the accident. There are other things that are discovered during the course of an investigation that impact on aviation safety. And those are the ones that need to get out, not as the probable cause, but get out as factual data Mm -hmm. to go to the industry, to the manufacturers, to the operators, so that they can make changes to their processes or training procedures or whatever it is to make the other improvements. And the safety recommendations that are the board's coup de grace, if you will, because they don't have, the board doesn't have a force of law. They can't put out a safety recommendation and it doesn't get implemented as a rule or regulation or or mandatory change like the FAA can do. But those facts that you talked about, it's not the probable cause that's the basis for a safety recommendation. It's those facts. 
it's the conditions and the circumstances and the systemic potential for this problem to happen again if the problem isn't corrected now or there is an additional regulation or policy or procedure or whatever. It is a very complex process. It is time-consuming. You and I have just talked about it in about 40, 45 minutes to give a nutshell overview. But there's always a lot of investigative work going on behind the scenes. The public only sees the front side right after the accident, and they may see the end product, which is the probable cause determination with a factual report, but they don't see all of the stuff in between necessarily. And that's why people go, well, why is it taking so long? Well, that's because there is still a lot of investigative work being done. In fact, I want to end this here and I want to come back with the next session and talk about all those groups that showed up, the weather, the structures, maintenance records, yes. the maintenance of the vehicle, pilot training, actually uh, what eyewitnesses saw, the human factors piece. Yeah. So in a, in a future podcast, we'll go through each one of those specialties and talk about what they do and uh, what we hope to get out of what they do. Well, hopefully we've given you, the listener, at least a, a little bit of an idea of what's going on in these major investigations. The same process works for a smaller scale general aviation or field type investigation. It's just done without 18 people. It may be done with a group of three or four where it's the NTSB, the FAA, and some party representatives, but the process is all the same. It's just done to scale depending on the, the aircraft that's being investigated. We hope that this particular episode gave you an understanding of the process. And as John said, yes, we are going to get into some more detail. We think that that will help give you a, a better understanding of the details and the, and the work that does go into each one of these accident investigations here in the United States. I can't say that this level of detail happens around the world. And John and I were very critical of that process with the Lion Air report. And so, again, we really appreciate the feedback that we get. We've gotten some great emails of late, both good, bad, and indifferent, which we always appreciate. So, you know, if you like what we're doing, please send us your feedback and give us a good rating. If you don't like what we're doing, send us your feedback and give us a good rating. <laughs> but, the, but the fact is, is that we, we do appreciate it. We always try to make the show better. We're always trying to identify those subject areas that at least we can give you a little bit of detail that you didn't know about or think about or a perspective. And so the feedback has been valuable. You can always get a hold of us at our email, which is flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. John, it's always good that when we're together, we happen to be in D.C. right now, and so it's always great to be face-to-face -face with you. We've done a number of the podcasts because of your travel schedule and mine, long distance. But I think that from what I've been reading with the feedback and some of the comments that I'm getting from people that are listening, and I think you as well, I think we're on the right track, but we're always looking to get better. So if you, the listener, can help us get better, we would really, really appreciate it. I'll give you the last word. Well, thank you all for listening. It's a pleasure for us to, to be able to help provide information to everybody and help everyone understand what goes on, because with understanding comes improvements. Exactly. So with that, I will sign us off. We hope that you have blue skies and fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, 
go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at All Protected.